you want me to move this? We good, Mike? Okay. <clears throat> well, uh, Megan, I don't know if you guys know this, I think Megan went for almost uh, <clears throat> a little over a year without a break. So this is her birthday week, so it's, we kind of treat it like Hanukkah. She gets seven days to celebrate it. <laughs> so, but we miss her, but Al, thank you so much. You guys did a good job, and <clears throat> Megan needed a break, so... Um, we're starting our new series today called the book of Mark. No, we're starting a, a new series, uh, the story of Jonah. I've titled it swimming lessons. <clears throat> and, uh, this week, week one, part one of the series is hoarding grace. So <clears throat> I would say that we all have basically two reactions to scripture the verses we love, and the verses we wish weren't there. You know what I'm talking about. <clears throat> so the question is, are there things in Scripture you love to read or to hear about? I mean, often what we do is we see people turn these verses into memes on social media. You know, like Philippians 4.13 is a good one, you know. Memes of nice verses from Psalms with promises and encouragements and every once in a while, we'll get a little edgy with a verse that we'll set out there in a meme that says, you know, love your neighbor. It's a little edgy right there, you know. You tell me what to do. Tell me, what to lo tell me to love my neighbor. These are all our favorite verses, right? John 3.16 is another one. For God so loves the world. Everyone loves these. They're encouraging, right? They're inspirational. But what about passages? You know what I'm talking about, the ones where we get kind of quiet when we hear them. We would rather have these verses ignored. I don't see, for example, many memes on Facebook or Instagram about verses from Leviticus. <clears throat> I don't see that very much, you know. Don't boil a goat in its mother's milk. You know, I don't see that on a meme. We don't see very many memes from verses in Isaiah. <clears throat> I don't see ball players putting these on the underneath of their cheek, you know. These are verses which, if God really means it, I mean, hopefully he doesn't mean it, but if he does, it's going to require significant changes in our life that we aren't, frankly, willing to make. Maybe it's a verse that addresses a specific area of habitual sin in your life. <clears throat> Something you know you shouldn't be doing, but you just can't afford to stop or you don't want to stop. You know, verses like, I don't know, sexual purity, handling your money, marriage, verses you hope, God means more as like suggestions, not really commands. <clears throat> commands we somehow rationalize hoping, well, God is just speaking generally or hypothetically. He doesn't really mean we have to do that. We tend to just kind of ignore those verses or explain them away so we can hurry back to Psalms and Philippians 4.13 as soon as possible. Frankly, when we do that, though, it results in our disobedience. This is precisely what the story of Jonah is about. A prophet who likes some of God's words, but not all of them. So the story of Jonah is dated somewhere between 733 and 756 B.C., before Christ, about 750 years, <clears throat> during the time when Israel was divided between two kingdoms, the north and the south. And Jonah was a prophet during this king whose name was Jeroboam. He was reigning in the north. 
And uh, Jonah is only mentioned one other time in the Old Testament. And we'll get to that in just a minute. But Jeroboam, this northern king, he wasn't righteous at all. <clears throat> but the north was, in fact, kind of prosperous. The northern is kingdom of Israel was prosperous during his reign from about 793 to about 750 B.C. But even during his reign, even with the prosperity, there was this underbelly of selfishness and rebellion and corruption in Israel. They were failing to be truth and light to a pagan world, which they had been commanded to do. On top of that, Assyria, which is uh, where Jonah was commanded to go with the gospel, Assyria and Israel had this very long rivalry. It's kind of like us in China right now. There was no warm fuzzies. It was not like the USA-Canada relationship, you know. <clears throat> there have been histories of invasions and battles between Assyria and Israel. By the way, Assyria is modern-day Iraq, so not much has really changed. As a matter of fact, the prophets of Hosea and Amos, who were contemporaries of Jonah, all three of them were prophets at the same time, those guys declared that if Israel didn't repent of its rebellion and disobedience, soon Assyria would conquer Israel and enslave them. People who listened to the prophets of God knew sooner or later God would use Assyria to judge Israel. As a matter of fact, here's the verse in Hosea. They shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return <clears throat> to me. And in fact, by the way, this is once again affirmation of the beautiful authority of Scripture, right? That's exactly what would happen 30 years later in 722 B.C. Assyria would conquer Israel and put them into slavery. Isn't that fascinating? So there's this natural Israeli disdain and fear for modern-day Iraq or back then Assyria. I mean, after all, Assyria represents the greatest earthly threat to Jewish prosperity. Which brings us to our passage today in Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. <clears throat> now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh. That's the capital of Assyria, by the way. Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Simple command. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish, which is modern-day Spain, from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. He mentions this city that I can barely pronounce three times. I wish it was just once. But God is making a point. He did not go to Nineveh. He went to Tarshish. It's about 2,500 miles away from where he's supposed to be. Let's look at the his history of this passage. I've entitled this section, Jonah Just Hates Nineveh. So first of all, I want you to see, there was some fun obedience that Jonah had, right? Jonah is a patriotic Jew. He loves the nation of Israel. And like most... He felt that Israel alone was entitled to be the sole beneficiary of God's favor and God's blessings. In fact, the one other mention of Jonah in the Old Testament I told you about is actually a glorious prophecy that God gives to Jonah to tell to the unrighteous king Jeroboam, and it's recorded here in 2 Kings 14, 25 to 27. You ready? This is one command that Jonah had no problem declaring. He liked this one. You ready? God, he, God, restored the border of Israel from Labo Hamath as far as the Sea of Arabah, according to the word of the Lord, the God of Israel, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, 
the prophet who was from Gath Heifer. So he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam, the son of Joash. What was the prophecy? Jonah, I want you to go to Jeroboam, your evil king, and tell him I'm going to restore the borders under his reign. Now, how do you think Jonah felt about that word of God? How excited that he was about taking that prophecy in 2 Kings to Jeroboam? I mean, that was a prophecy that Jonah certainly enjoyed, right? Yeah, Israel. Even though we're sinful, we got the blessings, dog. All right. I mean, what prophet wouldn't like that one? No problem proclaiming that message. You want me to say what to the king? Absolutely. Do it. Wait, God, what? You're telling me to go tell our disobedient king you're going to bless his reign anyway? Great. That's a message that Jonah was able to embrace. I mean, any prophet of God would be thrilled with sharing that message to whoever God wanted to hear it. God's grace is fun. Amen? Amen. It's great. Yes, you're an evil king, but don't worry. I'm going to save you by the hand of your evil king, Jeroboam. I'm going to expand your borders back to where they used to be. That's fun obedience. The other thing I want you to see here is that there is some selfish faith going on with the prophet. Why would Jonah want to preach a message that might give Assyria the blessing that he would see as Israel's alone? I mean, if I go to Nineveh, which is Mosul, Iraq today, and preach this message, that's not going to be good. Besides, you know, it's a long, hard journey. I'm going to have to be there. It's not like he goes for like a weekend seminar and preaches and leaves. He's called to go there for like a year. What about my family? I'm going to expose my kids to that Assyrian culture? I mean, what good Jew wants to spend any time in Nineveh? There's no temple. Tons of pagan worship. The food is awful. The music is ridiculous. The fashion is terrible. I don't want to dress like these people. Who wants to spend any time there? And then there's the political reality he's dealing with, right? Assyria is, e- is Israel's biggest threat right next door. We don't want them involved in our religious lives. <clears throat> That's the last thing Jonah or any Jew would want, is an obedient Assyria that shares in the blessings promised to Israel. I mean, at this point, Israel has enjoyed how God seemed to be judging everyone else for their evil while letting Israel skate free with grace and blessings. Wait, go to Nineveh? Preach to the Assyrians how they can be forgiven and receive the blessings? Our blessings? No way. So Jonah does what any rational Assyrian-hating prophet of God would do, right? He just pretends he doesn't hear God. (laughs) In fact, he heads 180 degrees the opposite direction of Mosul, Iraq, or Nineveh, to the port of Tarshish in modern-day Spain. This is a cycle of hoarding God's grace. And it wasn't unique to Jonah. It's a consistent nationwide spiritual moral failure. But Nineveh is in fact ready. See, Assyria wasn't without its problems during this time. There's famines. There's internal revolts. There's documented historically a devastating earthquake in Nineveh that caused a lot of havoc. It's a nation experiencing what many Assyrians would see as an omen of divine judgment. 
This pagan nation had been brought to its knees to a place where desperation and prepared hearts by the grace of God were ready. It was a nation ripe for a message of God warning them of the consequences of evil, encouraging them to return from those ways and promises to forgive them through grace if they repent. So that's the history of this passage. Look at the spiritual application. What about God? What does he do and why and how does he do it? I want you to see that what's happening here is God has a desire and a plan that involves saving pagans. Let me read this verse to you from Genesis chapter 12, 2 and 3. And I will make of you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. See, when God called Jonah to preach to the Assyrians in their capital city, it wasn't some random petty command or some simple little test to see what kind of a guy Jonah was. God's calling of Jonah is a direct, sovereign act of his grace to a foreign, pagan nation, and it's before the Great Commission ever starts in the New Testament. See, God never intended grace to be hoarded by Israel. In fact, they were to be a blessing to all nations. They were supposed to take this message, his message, to Gentile nations all over the world. And at this point, God is ready to bless Nineveh with a message of hope and redemption and forgiveness through his prophet Jonah. And Nineveh, like I said, modern-day Mosul, Iraq, was the capital of the Assyrian Empire, the seat of power, the seat of influence. If God wanted to save the Assyrian Empire, Nineveh would be the place to send his prophet Jonah to preach. Unfortunately, Jonah has some unwilling feet. Like I said, this wasn't some petty test to see how good of a prophet Jonah was. Jonah was his chosen preacher. I'm going to read to you a verse from Romans chapter 10, 13 to 15. Or 14 to 15. How then will they call on him who they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him who they have not ever heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. See, it's part of God's overall plan from the beginning, right? See, this is a foreshadowing what God is doing with Jonah. It's a foreshadowing of the great commission the church is supposed to be fulfilling. This was always and is still today the way God expands his kingdom through the feet and the lips of his children. But Jonah was not going to be posting that command on Instagram. He wants nothing to do with it. Because beautiful feet start with someone who's actually willing to go, willing to preach, and willing to teach. But Jonah doesn't want beautiful feet. He'd rather have ugly shoes in Spain. All right, the personal section. What about us? What are we doing? Why and how do we do it? I've entitled this section, Ugly Shoes. Some of you can relate, I can tell. Just looking out. This was my Sunday sermon preview this week, the social media thing. Our nature is to be consumers of grace rather than conduits for it. That's what our natural instinct is. 
We want grace. We want forgiveness. We want redemption. <clears throat> but we'd rather just <clears throat> not be bothered with the other part. <clears throat> I'm going to give you this concept I call selective obedience. I've preached on it before. Excuse me. <clears throat> it is easy for us to shake our heads at Jonah. But you're no better. We are no better. We have the same reaction to God on a daily basis. <clears throat> so question, did you ever <clears throat> excuse me, did you ever pretend like you couldn't hear someone because you knew they you weren't going to like what they were saying or what they were going to tell you to do? <clears throat> Maybe you pretended you didn't hear your boss or a friend. Maybe when you were younger, you pretended like you couldn't hear your parents. Of course, we never do this with our spouses. We never, <clears throat> we never pretend we can't hear them. People in our churches, we do this with God's word on a regular basis. We ignore it. We'll neglect it. I'm good, thanks. Appreciate it. We ignore it. We neglect it. We politely nod at God's word that we don't like. We even procrastinate. Sometimes we even go so far as to fake our obedience to it. <clears throat> so what commands from God are you selective about this morning? Which ones are easier for you just to pretend like you didn't hear them? See, I'll tell you, selective obedience is really not obedience at all. <clears throat> it's simply selfishly running 180 degrees the wrong direction in really ugly shoes. And as I studied this week, I realized there are hundreds of ways that we choose ugly shoes over beautiful feet every day. In fact, many of you have on ugly shoes this morning, metaphorically. Some of you in this room have on ugly shoes. You've chosen them over beautiful feet. Some of you at home watching on the live stream, you have ugly shoes you've chosen over beautiful feet. <clears throat> Because what we're doing is we're often hoarding grace. We love the blessings of knowing God, right? But priorities reveal we're quite selfish with grace, aren't we? I mean, we hoard grace. We barely entertain the idea of sacrificing that might be needed to share grace to those around us. It's a little bit inconvenient. Sadly, it's not just Jonah or you. Frankly, from, as a pastor speaking, it's most of the American church. Most of the American church experience is designed for us as Christians to hoard grace. We hoard it for our church. We hoard it for our families. We do it with our programs. We do it with our worship. We do it with our budgets, with our buildings. Most of those are for us. They're not for Nineveh. Oh, now listen, don't get me wrong. Every once in a while, there might be an example that we actually share grace when it's convenient. When it's on our way to whatever destination we have in mind for our life. And we are more than willing on occasion to be a part of God's process of calling other people to his knowledge until there's some sort of cost involved, some sort of inconvenience, some sort of discomfort, some sort of risk, something that hinders our personal agenda. At that point, we're choosing ugly shoes almost every time. 
Maybe it is just as small as disturbing our sleep schedule on the weekend or our Starbucks budget. Or maybe it will get in the way of our secret sins, our addictions. Look, there's hundreds of things that make us choose ugly feet or ugly shoes over beautiful feet. And as a result, rare is the occasion where we actually share grace with anyone outside of our own family. Sometimes you can't even do that, right? <clears throat> Consequently, many of us are just like Jonah, choosing to wear ugly shoes, running 180 degrees the opposite direction of full obedience. In fact, in America, we reward churches with comfortable, ugly shoes, don't we? We'd rather just enjoy grace with our friends. But there's something that we need to learn. It's called generous grace. What would you say are the greatest benefits of grace? Right? I mean, forgiveness is a good one. That's good benefit. Transformation, I like that one. Eternal life, boy, that's a lot better than hell, ain't it? God's blessings on our life and our children, those are all benefits of grace. <clears throat> and yes, look, grace is all those things. But if that's the only way that you view grace, you're hoarding it. If that's 90% of the things you think about grace, forgiveness, transformation, eternal life, and blessings, you are an actual hoarder of grace just like Jonah and just like the nation of Israel. See, grace, true grace, inspires generosity. That's why it's one of our core values at Grace Life, surprising generosity. True grace inspires generosity, which makes us willing to share grace with others, even at a cost. True grace enables us to see those sacrifices as a privilege that we embrace, not a burden that we're willing to run from 180 degrees the opposite direction like Jonah did. See, grace, true grace, empowers us to obediently go wherever God has called us to go, even if it means going to our own personal Nineveh, a place or a people or an action or an obedience we don't really like a place, a people, or an obedience, or an action that is a rival with our own personal agenda, <clears throat> our own secret sin. Because sooner or later, whether you realize it or not, and listen carefully, without generous grace, you will miss out on most of the joy of life that you actually crave. That blessed, happy, abundant life you keep say you're seeking inside the church will never materialize because life is going to get stormy with disobedience. We got the slides not working. Gavin, you can fix that for me. What if you're Jonah, the one God called to share grace with you, hoarded it. I mean, let's be honest, most likely, whoever it was, they probably did it first. <laughs> but what if God never let your Jonah experience the consequences of swimming in their own ocean of disobedience? 
You wouldn't be able to even have the opportunity to hoard grace today if God hadn't relentlessly called whoever it was to beautiful feet even though they wanted ugly shoes. Some of you, some of you are here right now today and you have not been generous with the grace God has given you. You've been very selfish with it. You are swimming in a sea of consequences, learning tough lessons about your disobedience. Oh, don't, don't get me wrong. You're still forgiven. You're still connected to the Father, but there are consequences for selfish grace, for selfish disobedience. Let's not sugarcoat it. That's exactly what it is. Willfully ignoring God's calling always has consequences. And we've all been there, right? You know the feeling? You're fighting to keep your head above water in what seems like a stormy sea of life, wondering how in the world did I end up here? <clears throat> You're swimming as hard as you can, but you just can't understand why it's so difficult. Well, perhaps it started with your selective obedience. But here's the good news. Even those tough swimming lessons that we're going to learn about over the next 80 weeks, just kidding, the next few weeks are a part of God's grace. So as your pastor, I've been praying about this series for a while. We actually decided to do it almost nine months ago. And I thought that it was coming on the heels of this series on Mark. It was a great segue. Yes, it's an Old Testament one, so it kind of gives us on ability to go back and forth from Old Testament to New Testament. But it also gives us lessons because, let's be honest, if you heard any of these sermons on, on, on Mark, you've been challenged, have you not? I mean, Jesus has pointed out some things that you got to work on. Well, now you have to make a decision. Am I going to be selective? See, I hope, and I've been praying, that this series on Jonah teaches you, us as a church, lessons about learning to see our obedience as a privilege, not a burden. I'm hoping this series on Jonah gives you a passion to crave beautiful feet over selfish, ugly shoes. I'm praying that this series on Jonah inspires us to be generous with God's grace instead of hoarding it all to yourself. And what does that mean? Well, we're going to find out in the next few weeks. Some of it we're not going to like. Some of it we'll like. But there's going to be some challenges here for us, for you personally. I hope you've been challenged today as we go through and we learn about some tough swimming lessons that Jonah had to go through. Heavenly Father, <clears throat> we confess our selective obedience. We confess to you that we are so good at pretending like some of the things we don't like in your word, you don't really mean. Or maybe we just steer clear of them. We love to hang out in Philippians and Psalms. But God, you've called us to do some pretty important things. Lord, help us to begin to see these not as a burden, but as a, as a privilege. And I pray for some that are here today and, and whatever your spirit does, and that's what we depend upon, the spirit of God works in our hearts. 
Lord, maybe you've touched the hearts of some people here or some people listening at home today that their feet have really ugly shoes on them right now. Lord, help us be willing to take those shoes off and heed the calling. Lord, we get so complacent. We get so comfortable. We get so lazy. We get so selfish. We get so selective. We're a little bit afraid of what full obedience might look like, what it might cost us, what we might have to give up. Maybe it'll make life too boring. Lord, relieve us from those ridiculous, foolish fears. Inspire us to surprisingly generous grace. We ask for this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm looking forward to this time over the next eight weeks or more in the book of Jonah. I hope you are too. You guys have a great week. If you need anything, let us know. We love you. We've got your back.